You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong women. So first, again, I would like to take a minute just to thank all of you for your kind words and messages following last week's show on body image and eating disorders. Many of you thanked me for being brave and for being vulnerable, and I guess I don't really think about myself that way. I just want to be honest and open about what's going on inside, because otherwise, all people see is what's going on on the outside, right? And I think there's a danger there especially in the age of Instagram and curated brand content. You could just see me smiling and laughing and riding my bike and occasionally standing on podiums or whatever, but you never see the tornado inside that sometimes drives me and sometimes wrecks me. And that's indicative of all of us, right? We all have struggles. We all have demons. We all have stuff about ourselves that we're not particularly proud of, but that's what makes us humans. And I think it's important to share that humanity. So anyway, thank you all for being here and thank you for sharing this journey. This week, we're going to make a little leap and talk about something different, sex. This is a topic that has come up a whole lot on the social media channels and in the feisty menopause membership. Loss of libido, painful sex, these are real issues during this time of life And many of you are not happy about it and want answers. And, you know, that's not just because your sex life is being affected, though that is certainly reason enough, but because these issues bleed into the rest of your life. Vaginal dryness hurts. It hurts your love life. It can be a real literal pain when you're riding your bike, running, feeling like less of your old self in the sex department also makes some women feel less of themselves in other aspects of their lives. It can cause relationship conflicts. It can cause internal conflicts. Anyway, none of this is particularly conducive to feeling and performing your best. So I called up one of the top authorities on the topic, Dr. Lauren Stryker, the author of Sex Rx, Hormones, Health, and Your Best Sex Ever. Dr. Stryker is the founder and medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Menopause and the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Health, and that includes programs on sexual medicine and vulvar and vaginal health. She has been featured on Oprah, Good Morning America, Nightline 2020, Today, The Meredith Vieira Show, just to name a few. So I was stoked to have her on this week to talk about improving what she calls your sex ability. Dr. Stryker believes that you can improve your sexual health just as you would improve your 5K running time or your deadlift in the gym. You work on it. And she had so much good advice to share on the mental, physical, and emotional steps that women can take throughout menopause and honestly the rest of their lives. You can learn more about her and check out her work at drstriker.com. Before we get to it, just a quick reminder, if you're enjoying the show, share it with your friends, subscribe, obviously, spread the word, give it a good review wherever you get your podcasts. All those things are really helping us grow, and I am eternally grateful. And with that, let's get on to the show. 
Well, I I am very excited for our conversation, and I'm really grateful that you're joining us because, uh, you know, as you and I have talked about, like people don't talk about this stuff, right? Like people people don't talk, and you know, this podcast is for very active women. You know, we've got triathletes and rock climbers and people, and um, we have a website on Facebook where people can ask questions, and there was a lot of questions about sex you know i mean there's a lot of questions about vagina but there's a lot about sex and before we get have you into ever it, done gonna... um orgasmic yeah. dysfunction for for long distance cyclers um i i have not i have heard about that topic i have not talked yeah. about this topic on the podcast yeah I mean, it's a different yeah. topic not but yeah yeah but it's we're going to talk I've, about that um... a little bit in a minute because i do have a question for you down the line about um because you do mention a bit about cycling and i know you as you mentioned, rode a bike, and we have lots yeah. of triathletes and cyclists in the crowd. But yeah. I and I, I did. I don't know if you, I, I if you read the acknowledgments in my book, but I did write my entire book on a treadmill desk. I didn't see that. I did not yeah. read that. that and I'll awesome. tell you a quick funny story. Please. So um, my treadmill desk, because I normally work on one not out here, but that's how I usually write. And um, my treadmill desk broke. This was about two years after my book came out. And mm-hmm. so I called the company where I got it, and they were as nice as could be and tried to troubleshoot over the phone. And they said, we can't help you. We're going to put you in touch. We're going to have the owner call you, the company. It was a small company. And so this owner called me, and he said, um, uh, I understand your treadmill desk is not working. And I said, that's right. And he said, are you the author of SexRx? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, you saved my marriage. I'm sending you a new treadmill desk. I swear to God. That is amazing. Isn't that a great that story? That is amazing. That is yeah. an amazing story. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Yeah. I love that story. No, you know what I love about it? You, you write a book and you kind of send it out there and you don't appreciate the impact that it, that it has. And when, that's why when I'm having a really bad day, sometimes I'll read my reviews because it really makes you feel like, okay, I'm making a difference. You know, I'm yeah. doing when, something that has an impact. And when you meet impact. someone, it, you really feel it, right? You yeah. really feel it. Oh, yeah. Because I, yeah, I do it like you. Awesome. I do a lot of public you know, speak. I do a lot of talks. Yeah. And it's great when someone comes up to you and gives you a hug and says, you changed my life, you know? Yeah. Oh, so, there's, it's all good. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So let's talk about sex um, okay. while, while we're here. I'd like to start with sex drive. And I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to read you like one of the posts that started a giant thread on our social, you know, our social yeah. channels. And it it has two different questions in it, but I think it, it does a really nice job of encapsulating what a lot of women run into when they hit sure. perimenopause and menopause. You know, this woman, she's 47. She's like, what just happened? I'm perimenopausal, even supplementing low-dose progesterone and testosterone to get balanced, and I'm still feeling off. My gynecologist says I'm fine, but I'm totally not in the mood for sex anymore. I legitimately used to crave sex daily. Now it doesn't even cross my mind. And then, you know, a few women are saying, well, you know, just do it. And maybe once you start and she's like, no, that, you know, that's not that's not OK with me because she's she likened it to being like, say you used to train and race and be super into it. And you woke up one morning and you didn't feel like doing either. Like, would you still sign up for an Ironman? You know, she's like, it, it just so there's two big things in here that struck out to me. A lot of women said the libido seemed to go off like a light switch. And some yeah. of them say that hormonal therapy turned them into 16 year old boys. And some of them say it did nothing. So yeah. I, what, what's happening? 
Well, when you look at libido, libido is actually the most common complaint that we get from women. You know, I run a sexual dysfunction clinic, and we kind of keep mm-hmm. track of, of why people are coming to see us. And, and libido is number one. It's at the top of the list. But the other thing about libido is more than any other type of sexual problem or sexual dysfunction, it's actually the most complicated, and that's because it's so multifactorial. When you look at libido, you don't have to consider one thing. You have to consider many, many, many things. You have to look at, is it physically pleasurable? I mean, if a woman comes in and says to me, I have no libido, and I'll say, well, when was the last time you had sex? And she'll say, well, we had sex about six months ago. Well, how'd it go? Well, it hurt like hell. Well, your vagina's not stupid. And if something hurts like hell, that's going to turn off your libido in your brain. So certainly right, there's right. that aspect. There's all the psychosocial aspects. We know that libido is going to take a nosedive if someone is having problems in terms of financial issues. Um, you know, they, they lost their job. You know, right. pandemics, all of those things <laughs> are going to impact on libido. We also look at things like other medical illnesses. There's a huge component of women who are dealing with other medical illnesses, whether it's heart disease, diabetes, cancer, you know, the list is endless of things that could impact on libido. And then we look at the neurotransmitters, things like um, dopamine, serotonin, Mm -hmm. all of those Mm -hmm. are so important. And sometimes a woman will start an antidepressant because of, you know, all the other things going on in her life and then not realize, because no one has told her, that that might have an impact on libido. And then, of course, we get... Even estrogen, right? Estrogen changes have an impact on those neurotransmitters, correct? They do, but not as much as you would think. That's not one of the main players. But when we talk about perimenopause and menopause, so let's focus specifically on hormones and the impact on libido. And, of course, the two big players are estrogen and testosterone. And when you look and you say, well, how important are those? That also is highly variable. I have patients, and there are women who are 60 or 70 years old who are not taking hormone therapy, who don't have a drop of estrogen or testosterone, and they are having terrific sex and a very high libido. And we know that we also have women who have perfectly adequate levels of estrogen and testosterone who don't. And that's because there's so many other factors. You know, one of the other factors that we talk about a lot is the monotony of monogamy. I can't tell you how many women say, you know, I have no libido, and then suddenly they're in a new relationship, and nothing else has changed, and it's all of a sudden they, they, you know, they can't get enough of it all day, every day. So those are the kinds of things we look at. But it is interesting in the woman that you talked about that she said it was kind of like something just turned off like a switch. And when something just turns off like a switch, the first thing I am going to look at is, is number one, are there other medications, what was going on in your life at that time? you know, as opposed to something that gradually changes. And very often they can pinpoint something. Oh, yeah, that's when I started my Prozac. That's when, you know, my husband and I started having problems and we went through a divorce, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if you're just going to focus on hormones, first of all, measuring hormones is generally not helpful, particularly during perimenopause. And in fact, we don't do it. And the reason why you know, the typical thing, a woman will come in and she'll say, I think I'm perimenopausal. And, you know, my, I think my hormones are all over the place. But I went to my internist or I went to my gynecologist and they measured my hormones and they said I was just fine. 
And my response was, well, maybe you were just fine at two o'clock on Tuesday when they measured your hormones, but this is a roller coaster. And if they had measured your hormone levels a few days later, it would have been different because that's the nature of the perimenopause. It's up and down and all over the place. So we generally don't measure hormones. And the other thing that's always interesting is someone will come in on the other side of the spectrum and they'll say, I'm 55 years old. I haven't had a period in five years. And I had my estrogen measured and it was zero. And I'm like, you think, you know, there's no point in measuring, you know, I mean, are you kidding? You know, of course it was zero. You're postmenopause. It's kind of like doing a pregnancy test in someone, you know, when they're nine months pregnant and being shocked that it's positive. And you don't, you know, we don't measure estrogen in someone who hasn't had a period in five years because we know that it's zero. So, so while we talk about hormone levels, they're not, you're not always going to get your answer by measuring them. Um, and, and what's interesting is, is testosterone, to circle back to testosterone, testosterone, it has been shown in study after study after study that testosterone levels do not necessarily correlate um, with libido. And the, the story I always tell, it's actually in my book, and this is a true story. I had a patient years ago, and she called me up and she said, I have no libido um, with my, when I have sex with my husband. And my husband's a doctor, and he wants me to have a testosterone level. So I said, okay. So she comes to the office. She has her testosterone level. You know, we drew her blood. And I called her up a couple of days later and said, well, I think we have the answer here. Your testosterone level's really, really low. And there's this long pause. And she said, well, that's real interesting because I'm having sex with my, my trainer like three times a day, and it's amazing, and that's all I think about. The point being that this is multifactorial. And the fact that she, you know, she just didn't like, you know, I always say she needed HRT, husband replacement therapy. Um, um, more than more than she needed testosterone. So you know, so with the, with the woman that wrote to you, could this be her hormones all over the place? It's possible. It's possible. You know, and certainly sometimes I I will look um, at, but also you look at is she having other symptoms? You know, she didn't comment on that. Is she sleeping? If people don't sleep, they don't want to have sex. They see that pillow, and that's all they want to do is is try and get some shut right. eye. So right. is she getting any sleep? What's going on with hot flashes? If she's perimenopausal, she could be having terrible hot flashes that also that's going to disrupt her sleep and kill her libido. What's going on with vaginal lubrication? Does she have, um, you know, decent lubrication so that sex is pleasurable to her? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the first thing we have to do when someone comes in and says, I have no libido is quite frankly, have a really long conversation with them and so that we can kind of figure it out what's going on. And then we can address it with some real solutions. They're very solution oriented. I mean, that's kind of my approach is, yeah, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not good enough just to say, Oh, I'm so sorry. You have no libido. <laughs> Let's figure out why. And then just try and come up with some, some real life solutions. How often do hormones help? Um, they help when someone is having hot flashes and has no libido and isn't sleeping they help when someone is having vaginal dryness. And in fact, when, when we see a patient who comes in and in fact says, you know, it's the trifecta, I have no libido, mm -hmm. I'm not sleeping, and my vagina is like the Sahara Desert. So right. our approach to that is we're going to fix the flashes and your vagina first. We're not even going to discuss libido at this point. And then after we get rid of the flashes, and after we get you some decent vaginal lubrication and get rid of the pain that's associated with sexual activity, then we're going to circle back. And if you're still having problems with libido, then we're going to address it. 
but it may well be that fixing those things will fix your libido. Can I ask you a weird question related to that? So I noticed the um, vaginal dryness as one of the first symptoms of that. Like I was still interested yeah. in whatever, but like I was like, ow, all of a sudden this hurts. This has never hurt. Um, you know, so I got replens, I think it was. I got something, you know, mm -hmm. I, I did some research yeah. and picked it up. And I started feeling sexier just walking around. That's and is right. it just because my brain was getting this like, oh, you must be turned on because yeah. you're, do you know what I'm saying? Like it's just yeah, absolutely. Like the, one of the, there's a difference, you know, between arousal, which are the physical changes that occur and okay. libido. And in fact, right. Um, okay, right before we got on air here, I was, I was actually preparing a, a medical student lecture and I was doing my slides on what's the difference between arousal and libido. And libido, of course, is thinking about sex. And arousal is the physical changes that occur when you're getting ready to have sex. And it's, it's always interesting to me when you look at what happens when you get aroused, your heart rate speeds up, your blood pressure goes up, you lose your appetite. Um, and when does that happen other you know, in life other than uh, sexually, well, it happens when the lion walks in the room. Fear and arousal <laughs> right. have the exact yeah. same physical manifestations, with the exception of with a sexual arousal, you get genital engorgement. Right. And you need estrogen or moisture in order to get that genital engorgement. So, yes, and for you to say, okay, suddenly my vulva and vagina don't feel like I got a transplant from someone else. It feels like it used to. And I feel like a sexual human being again, that will get your brain going. And, Interesting. Um, okay. you know, and, and when we talk about vaginal dryness and all of that, I mean, people just think of it in terms of sex. But there are a lot of women that it's not just about sex. It's just about how their genitals feel. Are they comfortable? Are they itching? Are, you, know, you mentioned yes. Replens. Um, Replens is an interesting product. There's, there's actually two Replens products. There's the, the moisturizer, the long-acting moisturizer that you use two, three times a week to get your vagina to make its own moisture. And then there's a, a lubricant um, that you use at the time of sex. And, and of course, they're very different. And, um, and that's something that we talk about a lot with women, you know, in, in terms of a first step to get things going. But the other thing I want to mention that you said that's important is you said for you, the first thing that you started noticing as far as a perimenopausal change symptom were these vaginal changes. And that's so important because that's not typical. Um, well, I had hot flashes and stuff like way, 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 but they went away and then all of a sudden they, okay, this so Yeah, because it's very rarely the first thing that people Yeah, yeah, feel. yeah. No, no, no. There, it was not okay, the first, so I but it was, I thought that I had missed that or something. <laughs> I thought so, maybe right, that so, wasn't okay, going to so happen. Okay, so that's the other thing is that, and, and this has actually been studied, is that if you, people have this idea that, that menopause is something that comes and it goes away. And I always tell people, no, 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 no. You are in menopause until you die. You know, your right, ovaries right. are never That's going to start making estrogen again. And it's really important because <laughs> the when symptoms you look, should just not, happen once and stop. And go on, done. You know? yeah. And I can't tell you how many women say to me, I'm done with menopause. And I'm like, really, are you dead? You know, did you get an ovary transplant? I mean, you're never done with menopause because Great even point. if you're not having hot flashes, the Great impact point. on your brain, on your bones, on your heart, you know, every single cell in your body is going to continue. And to that point, a lot of women who have hot flashes and then they go away. And then a few years later, remote from that, they develop painful sex and vaginal dryness. They actually don't know it has anything to do with menopause. They think it's aging because it didn't gotcha. happen. They think they're done with menopause. And that's one of the things that we're always educating women about is that those vaginal changes that are an absolute consequence of your ovaries no longer producing estrogen, um, 
It may happen remote. The other thing also, since we were talking about testosterone, you know, people think about estrogen in the vagina and they forget that the vagina also has testosterone receptors. And in fact, a lot of times when we treat vaginal dryness, in addition to using a local vaginal estrogen, which comes in multiple forms, we very often use testosterone in the vagina as well, not for libido, but to wake up those testosterone receptors. And it makes a huge difference, particularly, we see so many women that have really severe dryness from you know, radiation or chemotherapy or just long-term. And, um, and they do great when we use a combination of estrogen and testosterone. So don't forget testosterone receptors are Do you are know many if places. you could get popped for a drug test using vaginal testosterone? No. I have some I have some very high level athletes that listen yeah. and they, they do get drug tested. Yeah. So here's the interesting thing about vaginal absorption is yeah. when you look at estrogen and testosterone and the vagina does it get absorbed? It does. Very very little. Right. But this is the interesting part. It's counterintuitive. The more you use the less absorption you get. But if you think about it it makes sense because if you take someone that has very 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 thin vaginal walls like you know, tissue paper, and you put some estrogen or testosterone in there, and then you measure their blood levels, you're going to find it in their blood, you know, low levels, but you're going to be able to detect it. But then as they use it, the vaginal wall gets thicker and thicker and thicker, and there's actually less absorption. And this is something that we look at all the time with estrogen levels, particularly that if we measure blood estrogen levels in women who've been using estrogen for, you know, 30 or 40 years, it's no different than women who are not using vaginal estrogen. Really interesting. That's really yeah. interesting. And could you speak, because I, I can hear people thinking about it and typing right now, the Women's Health Initiative study has done more damage than I think anything is <laughs> that I can think of. I mean, I know it was well intended, but still to this point, people are so afraid of any sort of like supplementation of hormones. And then this UK right. study just came out, dropped in the British Medical Journal. I don't know if you saw that. And it was really just a redux of the, the UK study that came out with the right. Women's Health Initiative. But could you please, please, please speak yeah, to this that? Is, a this is what people need to know. Um, a couple of points that I want to make right off the bat. Number one, estrogen does not cause cancer. Estrogen does not cause cancer. Estrogen does not cause cancer. And in fact, in fact, this is not controversial. This is not my opinion. This is shown in every single scientific study, including the Women's Health Initiative study, which I'll explain why they got, you know, that, that message didn't get out there. The problem with that study, it's not that it was a bad study. It was a study that didn't look at what we needed it to look at, meaning that 70% of the women in that study were past their hot flashes. They were older. They were over the age of 60. They were like 60-something, right? They were in their 60s and 70s, the the majority of women. And the reason they did that is because they only took women who weren't getting hot flashes because they didn't want them to know whether they were getting the real stuff or the placebo. So it completely skewed their results. And in fact, if you look at the results that were just women in the 50 to 60-year-old age group, they were very different. And if you look specifically at the women who are 50 to 60 years old and taking estrogen alone, which would be women who didn't have a uterus, because the reason mm-hmm. we give progesterone is to protect the lining of the uterus. The those women had a, yeah, exactly. They, they had a 30% decrease in all-cause mortality, meaning from heart disease, cancer, everything. There was a decrease in breast cancer. There was no increase. The only thing they had a slight increase in was blood clots, and that's because it was oral estrogen. You can either give estrogen by mouth or through the skin. So. Right. If you look at the estrogen alone results, there was no increase in breast cancer. And 
And this is so reassuring, but women are not getting that message. So if you look at the specific problems with the WHI study, it was the women were too old. They were given an oral estrogen, which is not necessarily what we are using today. And the other uh, piece of it is that they were given a progesterone, which we very rarely use. It's called medroxyprogesterone acetate. And for those of us you know, in the know, um, we generally give a micronized progesterone, which, which acts very differently. Because if you look at that slight increase in, in breast cancer that was seen in WHI, and it was slight, it was barely statistically significant. If you look at that increase, it was in women who were taking estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate. And the feeling is, is it was the medroxy, Provera is the trade name for it, that the Provera was, was really the variable that, that caused that. So the menopause experts today can say with great confidence, estrogen does not cause breast cancer. It just doesn't. Um, and in terms of long-term hormone use, because I, you know, when I put a woman on hormone therapy, I don't take her off. You know, there's no limit to how long she takes it because, again, we talked about protecting your brain, your bones, your heart, all of those things that go long past the hot flashes. And, um, and there's actually no medical reason to take women off their hormone therapy. But I'm certainly very much aware of protecting her uterus, protecting her breasts, all of that. And, and certainly menopause experts are, are able to do that. But, but as you said, the WHI did a huge disservice to women because years later, and we're years later, people are still walking around thinking, is it worth, you know, risking my life just to have decent sex? And you don't have to risk your life to have decent sex. But the other big problem is that the doctors don't know it. That's the biggest issue, is that if you look at, you know, a small group of, of menopause experts, we all know it, but the overwhelming majority of doctors out there, quite frankly, don't know the data. So what happens is I'll put a woman on hormone therapy. She's doing great. Everything is great. And then she'll go to her internist and who will gasp and say, oh, my God, you're taking hormone therapy. And it's been, you know, you better stop. You're going to get cancer. And this poor woman is left in the middle and doesn't know who to believe or what to do. So, so this is what we struggle with. It's not just that women haven't gotten the, the memo. It's that their doctors haven't gotten the memo. And that's why whenever I, I do this kind of thing or do magazine article interviews and, and you know, and who's ever interviewing me always says, so women should talk to their doctors. And I always say, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> women should talk to a menopause expert. Yes. It might yes. be their doctor. They might yes. be one of those people. You know, I refer, I, I'm sure you're familiar with NAMS, the North American Menopause Society. And yep. This is the website where I send women to so that they can find a certified menopause practitioner who yeah. actually can steer them in the right direction. So do not assume that your otherwise phenomenal, amazing, terrific gynecologist who delivered your perfect, beautiful children is necessarily an expert right. in menopause. They may be, but right. maybe not, you know? Yeah. yeah and certainly yeah. in the sexual issues. You know, I always would add, you're like this whenever I talk to a group of women and I'll say, okay, Raise your hand if your doctor asked you about sex last time you went in for your annual exam and like half the hands will go up. And then I'll say, okay, leave your hand up if your doctor had, if you said if you were having any problems with sex, like painful sex or, um, you know, inability to become aroused and, you know, half the hands go down. And then I'll say, okay, leave your hand up if your doctor asked if you were able to have an orgasm. Every hand goes down. <laughs> but yet when a guy goes to the doctor, what do they get asked? Are you able to maintain an erection? Yeah, yeah. And women are not yep. asked that. So the doctors aren't talking about it. They, you know, they're, and women are just kind of left wondering. 
Yes. Yes. That's why we're having this discussion. So before we, before we leave that, the hormone piece, I am curious, like what symptomatically, what's the difference between, um, like the ring or some our localized estrogen and oral estrogen for yeah. what the stuff we're talking about. Exactly. So we basically divide estrogen therapy into two categories, local and systemic. Systemic is any hormone therapy that you are going to get blood levels that are going to help with symptoms. So when we talk about systemic hormone therapy, that comes in three forms, a pill form, it's transdermal, meaning through the skin, which can be a patch, it can be a gel, it can be a spray. There are a number of transdermal options. And this is all on my website, drstrecker.com. I have articles on all this stuff. Um, and then there, there is a ring in the vagina. And this gets a little bit confusing because there's two rings. One is called femring. And femring actually gives you systemic levels of, of estrogen. And then the other one is estering, which is local. So the other category of estrogen therapy is local vaginal estrogen therapy. And these are what we were talking about before, low-dose estrogen therapies that are going to um, really do a turnaround in terms of vaginal tissue. It will increase lubrication, elasticity, help with having orgasms, help with urinary symptoms. You know, there's, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase genital urinary syndrome of menopause, um, but a lot of women are not, of course. Um, but when they think of the changes that occur after menopause, people think primarily about the vaginal changes. But genital urinary syndrome of menopause is really recognizing that this isn't just about what's happening in the vagina, that many women also have urinary symptoms such as recurrent urinary tract infections, urgency, frequency, all of that. So the local vaginal estrogens essentially address all of those symptoms of genital urinary syndrome of menopause, not only the vaginal symptoms and the ability to have pain-free intercourse, but also um, the urinary symptoms as well. That's yeah. great. That's great to, to hear that both of those things are helped. And we've talked to, like, you know, Mary Jane Minkin, and I had a pelvic mm-hmm. health floor specialist, and she talked about some of that too. So uh, the, the pelvic floor, boy, you know, in, in my center, we have three um, pelvic floor physical therapists full-time around the clock. We could have... 20 of them, and they would still be jam-packed. I mean, that is probably my most common referral because, um, and I, you know, when, when we talk about the ability to have pain-free intercourse after menopause, we have to treat the tissue, of course, so that it will lubricate and be elastic. But you also have to, as, as you know from, from your other guests, you have to also make sure that your pelvic floor muscles are not going to be tight because what happens is if someone has been having painful intercourse, then the pelvic floor muscles go into keep out mode. And, you know, the minute the penis enters <laughs> the room, mode. they just that's tighten scientific. up, right? Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly what happens. And so yeah. you have to, you know, get rid of that muscle memory. So we do both things with virtually every patient. And when she comes in and, and she's not able to have intercourse um, and we are treating the tissue with whatever we're doing, either a local vaginal estrogen or, um, or a laser treatment or a DHEA, you know, we have a lot of ways of, of reversing these vaginal changes. But more often than not, we also have to have her see our pelvic floor physical therapist to get rid of that muscle memory so that her pelvic floor muscles don't panic when they see the penis. Is that where the magic banana comes in? The magic banana, <laughs> yes, and no, like, yes and no. Okay. Um, the magic banana has not been tested um, <laughs> in any kind of clinical trial. This is one of okay. the many products that are out there on the web. There's no end of money that you can spend on, on these things. That's not one of the ones I recommend because we really okay. don't. I have, some, I have a <laughs> lot of fun to say. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. There's actually, um, 
an interesting product, um, which is an over-the-counter product, which really helps in, in terms of the urinary uh, changes. It's called Attain, A-T-T-A-I-N. Um, and the website is in control medical and full disclosure. I do work with this company because it is amazing that okay. this actually will help with a lot of these changes that women are having in terms of um, it, it kind of tries to reproduce what a pelvic floor physical therapist does. Because the thing about pelvic floor physical therapy in a perfect world, every woman would be able to go see a pelvic floor physical therapist. But and the what reality are they really is, doing? Like, can you like talk about what like, are they what, doing? Yeah. The, what are yeah. they really doing? is they're doing, first of all, hands-on work. You know, we, we actually have a whole <laughs> description which we give patients before they go in so they're not surprised. Um, and I, on my website, I have a, a number of articles about it as well. But they, um, first of all, they do an incredible evaluation of not only your, your pelvic floor muscles, but your back muscles, your abdominal muscles, because all of these things are tied together. And I can't tell you how many people will go to see our pelvic floor physical therapist for treatment of painful sex or incontinence, and then suddenly say, oh, my God, my back pain is gone, because it's all influences. So they do an external evaluation, and then they do internal work, where like the gynecologist, they are putting gloved fingers inside the vagina, and they are evaluating the pelvic floor muscles. And then once they figure out what's going on in terms of are your muscles weak, are they too tight, are they not working in a coordinated fashion, then they use a number of different techniques, just like every other physical therapist, you know, to get those muscles to be stronger, to relax appropriately. Sometimes uh, they're using biofeedback. Um, it's, women are very skeptical, understandably, and, you know, quite frankly, not all that excited about going to see a pelvic floor physical therapist. And then they are the biggest champions after they go through it. They're like, oh, my God, this has been life changing for me. I mean, I call them my magicians because they really do such extraordinary work. So I, but not I, every woman I, has access to them. That's the problem, yeah. No, you know? and I took you on a tangent there to explain that because you were talking not about the magic banana or the Benoit balls or other things that people put up into their vaginas to make them. I don't know, right? The muscles or something. It doesn't work. That's not the okay. way to go. What what is what does attain do? Like what it, you were talking about. What the... attain does is it really tries to reproduce what the pelvic floor physical therapist does, in that it has both passive and active components. So it's a, a it's a little balloon that goes inside the vagina, and then you can okay. like pump it up so that it fits perfectly, and it actually rests against the pelvic floor muscles, and then. Oh. When you turn it on, it actually um, has a little e-stim that causes the muscles to contract and relax so that it kind of re-educates them. Oh, and then wow. there's a biofeedback component so that as you start to squeeze and let go, it tells you if you're oh. doing it right. Because a lot of women are like, can I just do Kegels? And it's like, well, the problem with Kegels is that most people don't do them correctly. They don't do them consistently. And mm -hmm. it's not going to, you know, they just honestly don't work that well for most people. It can people. be more of a problem than help. Yeah. Especially if they're doing them wrong, correct. Right. And so attain essentially assures that women are learning to exercise their pelvic floor muscles correctly and the stimulation component strengthens the muscles. So in a perfect world, I have women doing both. I have them work with the pelvic floor physical therapist and I have them do an attain because what happens is the pelvic floor PT, it's limited. You know, you, it, and it's like any other exercise. You can't go to the gym for six weeks and, and get great arms from lifting, you know, your weights and then stop doing it. And six months later, expect to have great arms. And it's the same with your pelvic floor muscles. A muscle's a muscle. So after you've finished with your pelvic floor physical therapist, you need to do things to maintain what your muscles have learned. Wow. Okay. That's, that's very, very interesting. So that is something that pe women can, can 
attain on their own. They can, it's, they yeah, can... in controlmedical.com. It's, it's really, yeah. and there's all kinds of great video there that explains what it does and how it works. It's, it's very, very cool. Very, very interesting. So I want to, b- before we leave, um, before we leave the vagina, we're not leaving the vagina today. I did want to talk a little bit about the difference. You know, I mean, it's really easy, I think, in my mind to go, oh, okay, sex hurts. Uh, I'm just going to put some lube down there. Like, is yeah. is that, you know, is it, what's the difference, I guess, between lube and moisturizers? And right. Is, well, this is, is the it, thing. And, yeah, and this is actually um, one of the things that we see most often when, at, at our center because women will come in and they'll say, you know, I try lube, it didn't work, and I don't know why. And right. the, the first thing is, is we have to find out why. Why are you having pain? In postmenopausal women, more times than not, it's because of a lubrication and a vaginal elasticity problem, but not always. Sometimes okay. someone will come in and we do an exam like no one's ever had in their regular <laughs> gynecologist, and we measure vaginal pH, and we're looking at the wall of the vagina, and we're, we're doing an evaluation of the pelvic floor muscles. And I can't tell you how many times I find someone who has perfectly normal vaginal walls that are lubricating, and they're having painful sex, and you know a whole bucket full of lube isn't going to help them because their problem is pelvic floor muscles. But let's just say, for the sake of discussion, that it is thin, dry vaginal walls, and they've tried a lubricant, and the lubricant isn't working. Well, the reason that the lubricant isn't working is the lubricant does not change tissue. Lubricant only decreases friction. It's essentially a barrier between the penis or toy, whatever someone's putting in their vagina, and and the vaginal wall. And so if someone has mild changes, mild dryness, well, a good lubricant is going to going to do it for them. And I do want to circle back and talk about what's a good lubricant and what's a bad lubricant. So, because sometimes that's the problem too. So if someone is using a lubricant and they are still having problems, then we say, okay, you need something that's actually going to change the tissue. And while long-acting vaginal moisturizers such as Replens may do it for some people, um, it's not going to work for everybody. A lot of people just aren't doing it enough. You know, you have to be How really consistent work? with it. How does like the way we cleanse like... works? It's so interesting because the way that it works is it actually sucks water into the cells. And if you look oh, okay. at a biopsy, um, which we don't obviously do routinely, but if you, <laughs> but if you look, really got no, no, no. I'd rather if you, not. If you, do, if you look at, at water content in cells after someone has been using Replans Long Lasting Moisturizer very consistently, you actually see sixty percent increase in the water content in the cells. So that's how it works. That's oh, how it works. Um, Is it taking water from the rest of you? It takes water from outside the vagina. No, in, you know, there's always water in the vagina, and they're like sucking it into the cells. But the oh. other place where the water is coming from is from the blood vessels. And when we talk about vaginal dryness, one of the things that is going like to impact... Sweating? No, it's just, okay. it's, it's about blood supply. So for okay. example, if you have someone with cardiovascular disease or diabetes and they have vascular problems, they very often will have the most severe vaginal dryness that because the blood flow has been compromised. And in fact, diabetic right. women very often suffer the most with vaginal dryness. Um, because of the, the, the smallest blood vessels, the capillaries, and it's, it's a transudate, meaning that the, um, the blood vessels actually have water that, that come out that is then taken up by the vaginal cells. So when we're looking at increasing vaginal lubrication, one of the things that we need to do is to increase blood flow. And estrogen is a vasodilator, meaning it, it makes the blood vessels expand, 
and more blood get there. So that's why we have to go to the prescription products. So if, if a lubricant isn't working, that's when we say, okay, let's look at one of the prescription products, whether it's one of the local vaginal estrogens, which could be in the form of a cream or a ring or a suppository or a tablet or DHEA, which is actually the, the, um, the building block for estrogen and testosterone. And then I do laser therapy as well. And all of those things, the Mona Lisa is the one that I do. Yeah. And all of those things increase blood supply, increase collagen, thicken the vaginal walls, you know, make them healthy, make them so that they lubricate and and that there's normal elasticity. Um, You know, it's interesting because we started off talking about libido. And when someone walks in the door and their only problem is libido, in my head, what I'm thinking is, I hope I can help you. I think there's a good chance I can help you, but I can't give you a guarantee. When someone walks in with vaginal dryness, I can pretty much give them 100% guarantee <laughs> I, that I sure can sure sounds help. that way. Yeah, something's I mean, going to work. It's, it's, <laughs> right. This, this, this is fixable. This is so fixable. Yeah. And it is the rare, rare, rare woman who is having painful intercourse mm-hmm. from vaginal dryness that I can't help. Now, sometimes it's, it's more of a project than other times. You know, some women, right. it's just, it's a matter <laughs> yeah. of giving them the right lubricant or using a little medication. Some women were doing, you know, vaginal dilators and pelvic floor physical therapy and, you know, a lot of things. But if someone is motivated, that's the key. If someone yeah. is really motivated and says, this is something I want to do, I can help them. So you wanted to talk good lube, bad lube before we left. Yeah, that. good lubes, bad lubes. Um, so, you know, people, when they try lubricants, of course, they go and they grab the first thing off the shelf. And the first thing off the shelf is usually not going to be what you want to use. And um, and I hate to badmouth specific brands, but I think also in terms of educating women, they need to know that KY Jelly, the number one product on the market, is essentially you know poison in the vagina. It eats away Ooh. vaginal tissue. And the reason why, and this is it's very you know visual. clear cut, <laughs> I know, but this is this is the reality. And um, there's something called osmolality and osmolality yes. is basically the concentration of a liquid, you know, how much stuff is in it. So water has an osmolality of zero. And then if you start to put stuff in it, the osmolality goes high. So in the vagina, a normal osmolality is about 300. So okay. if you put a lubricant in your vagina that has a high osmolality, what will happen, and I have pictures, this is one of those that a visual helps, and I do have all this stuff on my website, but, but what will happen is a high osmolality lubricant in the vagina actually sucks water out of the cells. We talked about how you plant long-acting moisturizer increases water content by 60%. We love that. You put something like, you know, a KY jelly or a flavored lube or, you know, a heating lube or something like that in your vagina, and it actually will suck water out of the cells because the osmolality of those products is well over a thousand. So what, and this is, I just want to be clear. These are the water-based lubes. The water-based lubes are the ones that have the osmolality issues. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so my approach is I happen to think that silicone lubricants are far better because Mm -hmm. you don't have the osmolality issue. Um, They last longer. Um, they're more slippery. So things like Replen, Silky Smooth, Wet Platinum, there's a lot of them. And again, I do have a list. Um, there's an article on my website, drstriker.com called The Lowdown on Lubes. And I do have a chart that okay. goes through Great. good lubes, bad lubes, what to avoid. Now, if someone does choose to use a water-based lube, there are a number of water-based lubes that do have low osmolality um, and that are quite good. You just mm-hmm. have to 
you know, know what to look for and buy those. And I always tell people, they'll say, well, how do I know um, what the osmolality of a lube is? And my rule of thumb is if it doesn't say, assume it's high. Any company that has rule. a low osmolality lube is going to brag about it. So, right, you know, right. KY does not have the osmolality of their lube is, written on their products. That is and and for some people, honestly, look, there are plenty of women that say, I use KY and I do fine. Well, lucky you. Great. They're yeah, great. terrific. But I'm saying if, in fact, you are having irritation, um, dryness, if it's not working for you, the first thing we do when someone walks into our center is we hand them a list of good lubes that they should use mm-hmm. because we know that that in and of itself for some women is enough to make a difference. Great. Great, 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 great points. Let's uh, let's pivot a little bit to we, we touched on it and I, I definitely want to come back to it now. Um, bicycling, you know, you were talking about there's there's a couple of questions to do with that. Um, it's in the book, you, you mentioned uh, Marsha Guesses, Dr. Marsha Guesses work at Yale, you know, about, um, you know, it, certainly they've done some studies where women, long distance cyclists, endurance cyclists, about 62 percent of them had higher vibratory thresholds, you know, just, just sort of meaning their, yeah. their sensation wasn't, wasn't quite as acute. And, um, yeah. she did say, I, I've interviewed her a bunch of times over the years because listeners know I work for bicycling and I'm, I ride about 700 hours a year, every year for the past 20 years. So I spent a lot of time in the saddle. Um, Definitely, I want to touch a bit like saddles have come a long way and you should not genital numbness is not okay. Like you should not, you should not go numb, your clitoris should not hurt, all that kind of stuff like that is, you shouldn't have a giant one of your labia shouldn't be like the size of a golf ball. I mean, I've done camps with women and they tell me this stuff. And I'm like, Oh my lord! Like, yeah, like no, it's hey, amazing what you need a bike fit. You need this. You need all this stuff no, because you really I know put up you shouldn't be sitting crooked because your vagina is so massive that you can't sit anymore. Like, I mean, that's right. a thing. Right. And, and nobody thing. Talks. And look, I don't nobody need to talks. tell you about how important <laughs> the right seat is and how important yeah. it is to look at you know the distance between your handlebars and where you're sitting and and you yeah. know where the pressure is. I mean, you're the expert on that. Um, the only thing I tell women about that is don't just jump on a bike and think that you're going to be okay unless you're just riding to the grocery store, you know, that you right. have to have it fit for you if you're going to do any long cycling. And also in terms of, you know, what, what kind of pants you're wearing, you know, you can't wear thin little pants and do a long, right. I don't, you know, this is your, this is your world. This is yeah, what yeah, you know. yeah. But I yeah. think specifically when we look at orgasms yes, and when we look at the ability to have an orgasm, and certainly there are lists of things that, that need to happen in order for someone to have an orgasm. But the number one thing is blood flow, just to circle back to blood flow, because you need intact functional nerves in the clitoris to have an orgasm. There's 8,000 nerves in the clitoris. They are teeny, teeny, tiny. And these teeny, teeny, tiny nerves are being fed by teeny, teeny, tiny blood vessels. And if those teeny, tiny blood vessels get compromised, you're going to get numbness and you're going to get decreased sensation. So one of the first things that we do in women who say, I used to have orgasms just fine, and I'm not, is we look at risk factors for compromised blood flow, and specifically clitoral blood flow. And then, you know, we, we, when we can do things to, to improve blood flow, whether it be an estrogen to be a vasodilator, or in the case of a cyclist, I mean, it's amazing. And you know how many people don't even know this, you know, just to say, no, it really matters how you're perched on that seat long-term. And if you are going to be cutting off the blood supply, you're going to get numbness and that's not going to serve you well. 
And if it's bad enough and goes on long enough, you can actually have nerve endings that, that die out on you. That go away. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want that. No, no. Nobody wants that. So do you do not. I just want to say that loud and clear because I know so many people who what they put up with is I'm just like, mm, I know you love riding. I love riding, too. <laughs> but like you need to. Um, you shouldn't hurt. You shouldn't go numb. Well, it, and it's like everything yeah. else. People just think it is what it is. And right. no, you can you can change that. You don't have to put up with that to be an extreme cyclist. You know, you can do right, something to, to mitigate that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm curious, you know, since you were talking about orgasm, and you mentioned that before. Are there menopausal changes that disrupt that that women yes. should know in this audience should know about? Okay. Yes, absolutely. You know, what we find is that orgasmic dysfunction um, does increase after menopause. And it is because of, um, in most cases, it is because of vascular compromise. Because, you know, when you you look at the health of the nation (laughs) overall, we know that at the age of menopause, 50% of women have another medical condition, such Mm -hmm. as diabetes, heart disease, metabolic syndrome, cancer, and all of those things can cause blood vessels to be compromised, which in turn can have an impact on orgasmic function. So there's Mm -hmm. that. And then you put lack of estrogen on top of it. And as I mentioned, you know, estrogen is a vasodilator. So that if suddenly you have blood vessels that aren't in great shape anyway, and then you take away their estrogen, um, it's going to make a bad situation that much worse. So it's a combination of age and menopause and um, coexisting medical conditions that cause problems with orgasm. And And the problem, of course, is no one's talking about it. No one's asking about it. And so, you know, diabetic women are one of the highest risk. And I can guarantee you that you can have the best endocrinologist in the world and they'll be managing your diabetes and telling you everything you need to know. And the chances are close to zero that they will say to you, by the way, are you having problems having an orgasm? So women don't even know that it's related to their diabetes. Um, You know, we talk about foot neuropathy and diabetes. You can get a clitoral neuropathy. They don't know that it's related. And most important, they don't know that it's treatable, you know, that we can help them. Right, right. No, No, those are excellent, excellent points. So just to circle this conversation back around, if I, if I am experiencing one of these things that is not obvious like I think I feel like vaginal dryness is kind of like I know when when that's happening the libido thing that we started with who where who's my first call um honestly I think and and I think everyone should read my book first because Uh, sure (laughs) no it is a really good book I'm going to recommend it in the beginning it is 400 pages with a lot of resources I you should plug it away seriously but but, Yeah. yeah the thing is is that what you want is you want to educate yourself so that when you do find the right person to call, you know what you're talking about. You know, you know, you you know, you don't want to just walk into it blind. I mean, it's so interesting to me because if someone was diagnosed with, you know, almost anything else, you know, infertility or, you know, some kind of cancer, they're going to read and read and read before their first appointment so that they know what questions to ask and they know what their options might be. And yet we don't see that. So if someone is having low libido, um, or any of the problems we've talked about, I really do think that that reading my book is going to give you the background and the language so that you do know who to call depending on 
um, what your issues are. And the problem with almost any medical condition, but certainly sex and menopause and all that, is if you just go to Dr. Google, you know, Lord only knows what you're going to come up with because there's a lot of bad information out there. And so, so this, you know, is a world that you really... Product-driven bad information. Exactly. And you really need to know um, that the information that you're getting is scientifically sound, yes. is medically accurate, is up-to-date, and, and that's one of my biggest frustrations is that women will come in, you know, having tried, wasted so much time and so much money and they're so frustrated because they went and they bought a jade egg or, you know, something like that. And it's like, gee, that didn't work, you think, you know. And so, but that's why it's so important. <laughs> or they're to, steaming to, their vaginas or God knows what they're yeah, doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, I, that's in my, on drsurker.com, I have a whole section called Crazy Stuff. And that's where Good. I talk about things like vaginal steaming, you know, steam your clothes, don't steam your vagina. Um, but that's, you know, so women really do need to educate themselves to understand their body, to understand what's happening, and then they can find the right expert. And I, you know, earlier, I I didn't mean to make it sound like your own gynecologist can't help you. Sometimes they can, and you can certainly start there. But my mantra is start with your own gynecologist. And if he or she can't help you, it doesn't mean there isn't help. It just means they're not the ones, you know, you have to take it a step further and find someone who can help you. And if they say, I, I want to just drive that home, because I've heard way too many times since starting this show from women who are like, who do go to their gynecologist who says, everything's normal, just go see someone else. Look at the, go to the North American mm-hmm. Menopause Society's page and find a doctor who is actually trained in menopause. Because way too often women are yeah. just like, oh, they said it was fine. And then they just, and it's not. they think it's you know, one of the I, I do have a chapter fair. in my book called Finding a Clinician Who Will Listen. And it really goes through... You know, yes, the NAMS website, but it goes through what are the steps of finding a doctor who knows what they're doing. Quite frankly, not just in this world, but just in general. You know, this is navigating the medical system is not so easy. And, you know, you have a lot of people that can be very talented, very helpful that are, you know, advanced practice nurses, physician assistants. Sometimes it might be an internist. You know, your gynecologist is not necessarily going to be the go-to person. So know what's out there and know how to figure out the who's who and who can really help you. No, it's great advice. I think a lot of women, um, they use their, their OB gin for their whole life, right? Like they just start that way and that's their primary caretaker yeah. for a lot of women for almost everything. Yeah. And it is, it is thing, good to sort of, yeah. The other thing I wanted to point out though, is that now of course we're doing all this telehealth because of the pandemic, which I'm hoping will continue after, but it's also really opened things up. I am seeing patients, I've always seen patients from all over the country because they had to fly into Chicago, which is where I'm based. Now I do consultations from women all over the country because we're doing so much telehealth. And, um, and that has really opened things up. Not to mention, sometimes it's worth a trip, you know? If it was your kid and your kid had a problem, you'd fly all over the country to get them the best care. When it's your orgasm, people are like, oh, well, whatever, you know. <laughs> Sometimes it's worth it. I mean, it depends on how important it Definitely is. Definitely worth a plane ticket. Your vagina is yeah, worth a plane ticket. I think ticket. so. Your I sex life so. is worth a plane ticket. Yeah. Excellent. Well, it has been an enormous pleasure talking to you, and I'm sure you've helped a lot of people. I have learned a lot. You know, and I read your book, and it was a lot to digest. So just hearing this talk through has been super, super helpful. Well, it has been my pleasure, and I'm always happy to talk about this topic because, you know, my mantra has always been, if you give women good information, they will make good decisions for themselves. And it all starts with giving women good information. Well, that's our show. 
Join me next week when I sit down with endurance coach Linda Rowan. You might remember Linda from our New Year's roundtable. She is a blast. Linda has raced nearly every triathlon distance from around the world. She is a USA triathlon level one coach, and she specializes in helping people balance their goals with the rest of their lives. We talk a lot of nuts and bolts on how to manage volume and intensity, lifting and endurance, and prevent injuries as you enter your menopausal years. You won't want to miss it. That's all from me this week. Until next time, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.